Among this year's class of new fellows of the National Academy of Public Administration, a few people from the legislative branch. Among them, my next guest, Zena Merritt, is the Chief Diversity Management Officer at the Government Accountability Office, and she joins me now. Ms. Merritt, good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Tom, for hosting me. At GAO, are you someone that looks at diversity and inclusion efforts across the agencies from an auditing standpoint, or are you concerned with what's going on in GAO itself? It's actually a mix of both. My official role as the Chief Diversity Management Officer at GAO is one to provide advisement to our own senior leadership, as well as our management team, unit heads, and our employee groups. And in addition to that, GAO has probably about 50 audits going on right now, looking at some aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And I serve as a key stakeholder and advisor on those engagements as well. Got it. And just a quick question on the accessibility question that has been added to the whole term there, the DEIA. Accessibility has always been for the handicapped or for people with disabilities, has always long been a feature and requirement of federal agencies in the way they set up technology and offices to accommodate the public and their own employees, I think 507 and 508, if I'm correct. So how did that get added to the diversity question, which is a little bit of a different issue? Well, I have to break it down this way and go from a definitional perspective I mean, diversity, of course, is what each individual brings to the organization. It can be their culture, background, different talents. The inclusion piece is ensuring that they have some sense of belonging once they become an employee at the organization. There's the equity piece to make sure that they have a fair shot at excelling in the organization. And then we added the accessibility piece. The accessibility piece, the way that we look at it is, making sure not just people with disabilities, but all employees have access to the tools and services that they need to accomplish their jobs. I think most people do think of it from an ADA or from a 508 perspective and only centered around people with disabilities. And they might think of programs like reasonable accommodations and others that focus on that. But I think with the current administration, The focus is much greater. We're trying to make sure that our organizations have the apparatus needed to be able to more effectively recruit individuals with disabilities, and GAO is no different from that. We see some attrition in this area, so it's also a problem that we're trying to solve and to be better positioned, not to just be reactive when we get an employee that has a disability, but to be more proactive to make sure we have policies and procedures to address any needs. And how do you think the government is doing in general on all of these counts? Well, I think um, I am a part of a chief diversity officer council, and it's something that all of us are adding additional focus on. I can't really give a scorecard as to how anyone's doing or the government why. But we all are in this together, looking at ways to improve the current state of things. And And we're learning from academia, private sector practices, and others on this particular journey. We're speaking with Zena Merritt. She's the Chief Diversity Management Officer at the Government Accountability Office and a newly named fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And just give us a little sense of the career that led you to where you are now. 
Sure, I'll be happy to talk about my GEO journey. Well, my public service career began over three decades ago, and I've served all of that time at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, known as GAO, with the exception of one year. So I would say personally, to me, that's kind of a testament that GAO has been a great place and a perfect place for me to do my tenure. I started as an analyst examining federally administered programs. I spent about 20 years of that career examining international programs. And after that, I spent about six years um, examining DOD programs, particularly inventory management. And I used to use my leadership. I used to say, hey, guys, you are really giving me some tough issues. Like somebody put a sign on my back and said, give Zena some of the tough issues to examine. But the great thing about GAO, I came to GAO with a bachelor's in business administration and a master's in information system. But the way that GAO operates, they really cultivated my talent. They provided some great training. They provided some great leadership skills. And that's how I rose to the level of senior executive. And it was through championing and staying on top of agencies to implement recommendations, working with agencies like DOD to get inventory management off the high-risk list, which have been on there for over 20 years by working collaboratively with them. That has been one of my strong suits throughout my career. Now you are a fellow at NAPA, and do you have some sense of the types of issues, well, I guess we can guess, that you'll be working on? Uh, And that's kind of interesting because it's often Congress that calls on NAPA, just as it calls on GAO, to look at things that it's interested in and learning more about. First, I want to say to be elected as a NAPA fellow was a pretty humbling and also proud moment for me. I always love to interact and engage with individuals from academia, the private sector, and other federal agencies on issues. But NAPA presents a very unique opportunity for me to engage with some of the top thought leaders across the country from different sectors. And yes, NAPA has identified 12 grand challenges for public administration to focus on. And I am very much interested in one of them particularly, and that is the one centered around social equity. Because both in the work that I've been doing at GAO and have observed, inequities remain just issue that has to have more attention and focus. Especially, I think the pandemic era really shed light on some pertinent issues that both NAPA and the GAO can continue to focus on. And through NAPA, I hope to engage with some like-minded individuals to help to address some of these issues of inequities in arenas such as the criminal justice, healthcare, education, and other areas. Also, just one last point on this. There's been a number of surveys that have been put out about the decline in public trust and the perceptions of the American people believing that the federal government isn't doing what it's supposed to do to serve them, at least some of the time. So I think the Academy is a great place um, to work with others to try to focus and help to enhance that level of trust in government again. 
And let me ask you this, after 30 years in government and seeing what it's capable of in terms of diversity, inclusion, equity, and where it falls short, would you recommend public service to, say, a daughter, son, cousin, friend? Indeed. Actually, my son may follow my footsteps. He actually had an internship one of the federal agencies this summer. He said he absolutely loved the experience. And so we'll see. But yes, I use every opportunity through recruitment fairs and other venues, venues like this, to really talk about my career, my journey, and encourage others to at least consider us. I know there's a lot of competition out there, but we definitely can see ourselves as a premier public service institution. Zena Merritt is the Chief Diversity Management Officer at the Government Accountability Office and a newly named fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for hosting me again, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with interviews of the other inductees at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, 
of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.